What's wrong with the justice system? Why do we need prison reform? And what was it like to meet the Unabomber? Find out with me, Taylor. Welcome to my show, Charlie Buttery. 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 <laughs> Buttery. I'm sorry. Wrong note. I know, on the wrong note. <laughs> I always get the names wrong. Anyway, welcome, Charlie. Why don't you introduce yourself to us all? Hi, I'm Charlie. So I am Charlie Buttery. I am hopefully going to get my uh, master's in theological studies this May at BU. Um, I was admitted to practice law in Vermont in 1986 and then in New Hampshire in 1989. And um, I've now dialed my back my practice back to part-time, but for the last 35 years or whatever it is, um, I've been doing trial work, uh, chiefly criminal defense, and that almost exclusively uh, representing indigent criminal defendants uh, who could not afford to retain counsel. And, and, uh, yeah, so it's, it's, I've, I've taken it as far as I can and, and I'm going to get this degree. I'm going to retire from the practice of law, but I'm really interested in maintaining my fingers in the pie of the criminal justice system and particularly dealing with, uh, criminal justice reform, sentencing reform, parole reform, which I think is overlooked and is a really important, um, aspect of a problem that we're not solving. Yeah, uh, I I agree. Now, for the audience, let's get into that. So, from I guess both a legal and maybe even a moral standpoint, like what what are the arguments for prison reform, and what is the problem as you see it? So, what's what's the issue that people need to know about? Okay, well, so for your listeners, I sent you earlier today a a, a list of any number of facts which underscore uh, the urgency of this problem. And I, I was saying to a judge not too long ago, we were at a sentencing hearing, I said, judge, we know this isn't working because it isn't working. Um, he still sent my client to prison. But um, so I think everyone knows that we have the highest incarceration rate in the world, and it's not even close, even though our crime rate is about that of most Western European countries at this point. It's gone down considerably. And I, I know that there's some politicians who want to play up the notion that, um, you know, crime is a huge concern in this country. And, and yeah, every every crime is a concern. But relative to where we were 30, 40, 50 years ago, crime rate is way down. Homicide rates are way down. But we still have 2 million people in prison, half of whom are there for nonviolent offenses. Um, they are in turn, overwhelmingly poor. They're overwhelmingly people of color. Um, they typically suffer from any combination of addiction, mental illness, intellectual disability. Um, they are disproportionately black. Um, and whereas whites and blacks use drugs, abuse drugs at the same rate, blacks are more likely to be charged. They're more likely to be convicted. They're more likely to be given lengthier sentences. Um, one thing I do, I want to talk about, and when we talk about prison reform, I think the only way to get lawmakers to buy into this, they, they really don't, it's, there's no political um, currency in caring about the prisoner. But there are people mm -hmm. who work in these prisons, and these prisons are awful places to be, not just as an incarcerated person, but as a correctional officer. And correctional officers themselves have extraordinarily high rates of uh, suicidal ideation, of mental illness. Um, they have the, the highest rate of PTSD among any occupation in this country. Uh, their life expectancy is considerably shorter than that of the average American. And so perhaps we can uh, compel our legislators to recognize that the system is broken for those who are running it, let alone for those who are incarcerated within it. Um, another major concern of mine is that, uh, so 5% of women, um, when they arrive at the facility, when they're booked for, after having been sentenced, are pregnant. 
And mm-hmm. most of them don't get any medical treatment at all. Um, I am aware of two facilities in this country which allow women to breastfeed their children. Um, in New Hampshire, until last year, the year before, when you gave birth, you were handcuffed to the bed in the hospital. And as soon as you left the hospital, the baby was taken away from you. And these babies have higher rates of infant mortality. And um, we, we, can, we can have a system that is humane and still accomplish our objectives, which is ultimately to reduce crime. I mean, that, mm-hmm. that's the whole point of this system, right? Um, and some people believe punishment is the way to go. Um, and, and frankly, I am not a, uh, an abolitionist, and there are some in the movement who want to abolish prisons. Look, I have represented um, sociopaths, and they're dangerous, and they're dangerous to themselves, and they're dangerous to others. There are some people who need to be away from us, um, mm-hmm. most of whom, by the way, are going to get out anyway. Um, but even those most dangerous people, we can treat with dignity, and, and we can treat with respect, and we might make them better people in doing so. Yeah, no, I couldn't agree more, Charlie. Like, that's so important, especially because like where I'm from, it feels sometimes like a prisoner. Once once you get caught up in that system, right, you, you're dehumanized at a social and community level. Like, he, you know, you've effed up and so no one wants anything to do with you. They don't necessarily want to help you. You're ostracized. And then even like, I don't know if it's an out of sight, out of mind thing, but it's just, yeah, yeah the, the, the loss of dignity. Um that gets attached to people in that situation. It's it's very profound. And I know from my own life, seeing people who get caught up in that system, usually they're not from the best of circumstances. Um, there was, there was a, I don't want to talk about the specifics, but in the last 10 years, there was a very brutal murder in my hometown. And it was, a, you know, a classmate of mine was involved, uh, got, you know, a lengthy prison sentence. But like, in looking back and thinking about this person as I was growing up with them, you know, I'm not saying, of course, they got caught up in then like no one's, you know, fated to get uh, dragged into these things. But it's like, come on, like what chance out did this person have? What chance out do lots of people have? And we treat them like garbage, you know, to be honest, like they're just disposable kind of, you know, little nothings. So really appreciate what you're doing. I think it's also important, you know, you bring up like, oh, did you want to jump in on that? No, no I just so you're, you're comment about and, and I'm. I'm paraphrasing, but they basically they get the scarlet letter, right? Uh-huh. And when I was taking a course on uh, slavery in early Christian literature, it dawned on me that you take these passages in scripture and you can replace the word enslaved with the word imprisoned. And, you know, it's basically the same thing. So in Rome, in the time, you know, in, in Roman occupied Judea, about 25% of the population was enslaved. And in fact, at one point, the Roman Senate debated whether to require the enslaved to all wear the same thing so that yeah. we could, they could identify them, right? Because it wasn't a racial thing back then. And it was then pointed out during the debate, if we do that, they're going to know how many of them there are. You know, so mm. that's just so they yeah. decided not to do that. But even when you were manumitted, even if you were freed as a slave, you were never really given Roman citizenship. You were always an ex-slave. And I think that's analogous to um, slavery. The classic definition of slavery is someone who is violently dominated and generally dishonored. Um, That's a slave. And they're nasally Mm -hmm. alien. Um, So we treat our formerly incarcerated people like the Romans treated their slaves and their ex-slaves. They they were they were so on the margin. They are so on the margin. And there's there and there. And I don't know if I included this in the, my list of things, but all of the federal laws and all the state laws that impact on convicted people getting housing, getting um you know public assistance for this that and the other. Yeah, jobs. Getting on a jury, getting a job. Jobs. Yeah. Um, and whereas in a place like Norway. And we'll talk about this later. But in Norway, when you get released from prison, you get all that. You get housing and you get education and you get you're treated as a member of the society. And their recidivism rate, the rate at which they repeat a fed, right, is mm-hmm. half about. So perhaps treating them with dignity actually achieves the objective, which is let's not have them repeat the crime. 
Oh yeah. Man, Nordic prison is my retirement plan. <laughs> I gotta tell like well, yeah, I mean you gotta we, be really bad to get into the prison. I know. Well look, like we I was at work one day and we were literally looking up pictures of Nordic prisons and we were like, This is nicer than some of the dorms that we've lived with or lived in at, at a college campus. But yeah, that I'm I'm saying that happened, Jess, but also not so much. I mean, just the the quality, I mean the way that they treat their prisoners, the way that they treat people the humanity they give to people and like your example of, you know, a woman giving birth, being chained to a bed, like birthing a human is already traumatic enough. You know, it takes a toll on body and mind. And it's just like, I can't imagine being chained to a bed while I'm trying to go through that process, not knowing if I'm going to see my child in the near future. Um, I had, I have a cousin who was born in, in prison under kind of those circumstances. And it's just, I think it takes an effect on everyone involved in the situation. You know, the trauma goes so deep there. So, the worst prisoner in Norway, and I don't know if you remember this, it was like 14 years ago. Anders Breivik killed 77 people in this mass shooting. I don't know if you remember this. He's no. a neo-Nazi, right? So anyway, this guy in Norway, after you serve your sentence, he got a life sentence, but every after your 10 years, you have the right to a parole hearing every year. He has in his room, in his cell, he does, he is segregated, but he's got a typewriter. He has an Xbox. He has, he's taking graduate level courses at the University of Oslo. Okay. This, he is the, I mean, our worst, they go to the Supermax prison in Florence, Colorado. And actually I, I spoke with uh, Teddy Kaczynski, the mm-hmm. Unabomber. Wait, you've, you've spoke, you spoke with Teddy Kaczynski? I spoke with Teddy. Damn. Um, why didn't you mention that? That's a whole podcast, yeah, Charlie. Yeah, no. So, um, it was at a time when he wanted to have the court. Uh, he ended up pleading guilty by reason of insanity, mm-hmm. and he insisted that that was against his will. That he and he, he insisted he wasn't insane, and the the judge accepted the plea, sentenced him to life in prison, um, and when was done with him, except Ted wanted that overturned. He wanted to go to trial. Um, and it, it didn't get any further than that. But um, I'm talking to a guy. I mean, it was his life was 23 hours a day in a something like a six by 10 concrete room um, with there's not. I mean, there, there's a toilet that's bolted to the wall. And, and I think that's about it. And an hour a day in chains when he gets some fresh air. But I don't think he ever sees a tree. Mm-hmm. Um, and you compare that to, you know, Anders Breivik from Norway who's taking classes at the University of Oslo, having killed 77 people. Yeah. and that, you know, That's insane. It's insane. And that's so like, insane. There are dangerous people in our yeah. country, you know, and we, we do need a secure place for them, but we can treat them with risk. Another, another person you may have heard of who I'm dealing with right now, Pamela Smart. Does that name ring a bell? It rings a bell, but you're going to have to okay. flesh that yeah. out. She was, it was her on misfortune to be the first, I believe it was Court TV's very first nationally televised trial. Oh, and that is, oh, yeah. Oh, no, so, so she was um, on the staff of a public school in southeastern New Hampshire mm-hmm. um, and got into a situation she should not have gotten herself into with one of her students. And long story short, her husband is murdered in what looks like a botched robbery. She's not at the house at the time. But the boy that she was having this affair with and his two friends were, um, they plead out, they testify against her. She's convicted of first degree murder. Mm -hmm. And in New Hampshire, the judge has no choice but to give her life in prison. And she's currently in upstate New York serving her life in prison. She's now in her mid 50s um, and she cannot get out because life in prison is life in prison without parole. Um, This woman at this point, I mean, she's had a she's done really well in prison insofar as she's the mother hen and she she has gotten two master's degree and a doctorate degree and she she she's who the the women turn to when they need help but what are we accomplishing now um for yeah so that was in the that was in the mid 80s i think um maybe late 80s anyway she's been there she's now in her mid 50s and she went in in her early 20s yeah and at some point at some point we have to balance our need for security and punishment and deterrence with the the need for dignity and compassion and uh, you know a, a Christian sense. I mean, if we're going to be a Christian nation, which we're not supposed to be, but it seems that those yeah. who are 
screaming loudest for that are the ones who are being the least Christian. I mean, it seems to me that like punishing an innocent person or not, maybe, maybe not, but, but, but punishing people, right, is pretty uh, essential to the Christian faith since our, well, our, I'm not really much of a Christian, but since the Christian symbol is a, a man being executed by the state, which is, I mean, honestly, that's my fundamental no. justification for not believing in the death penalty is, is growing up a Christian. I always thought to myself, you know, Jesus was executed, right? Like, and I know that the conversation is go to, well, he didn't deserve it. And these other people deserve it. I'm like, I don't care. I don't care. We don't kill people. We don't execute them. Like that's just, that is not in the spirit of righteousness. Well, you know, when Ted Bundy, do you remember Ted Bundy? He was another mass murderer. Well, I didn't know him, but I know of him. So anyway, when he was executed in Florida, there were two groups of people outside that prison, both of whom were holding up Bibles. Uh And one group was saying Ted Bundy should fry and holding up their Bible. And another group saying, you know, this is unchristian and holding up their Bible. I mean, let me ask you a really difficult question with that, because this is, I think, what a lot of people, what comes to mind when they are tasked with uh, thinking through the implications of the death penalty is like, but what if you're the family of the victim or like, for instance, in those two cases, you know, you you talked about some people will hear about the case in Norway and think, oh, man, that's like that guy does not deserve that. He's he's living a good life. He deserves what Ted Kaczynski got. Right. Like, that's exactly what he needs, not as a matter of reform but just as a matter of just desserts so i mean that's not the position i take but how do you respond to that so there's a quote and i've seen it variously attributed to nelson mandela and fyodor dostoevsky yeah Um, and i'm i'm paraphrasing it basically you judge a people by how it treats its prisoner Mm. you know and and i think there's a lot of truth to that um and you know if if you want to bring jesus into it um, you know, Jesus, you know, I was hungry and you fed me. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink, blah, blah, blah. I was in prison and you visited me. Um, and so I don't read Jesus as saying we should abolish prisons, but I think he's saying we need to be humane with it. Um, you know, I, 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 I'd like to have a chat with him right now and ask him what he thinks about all this, but he may be busy. Um, but in any event, I, I went off on a tangent and I'm trying to bring myself back. That's good. I mean, I I guess I just wonder, like, how you think we should balance the concept of redemption and the idea that everyone can find their way to that with this larger societal demand for punishment. Because that's I mean, that's let's be real. That's what it is. A lot of the times is we want to see someone we think did something wrong punished. We want to see them suffer as we think they caused someone else to suffer. So that raises a very important question that we grapple with all the time is the punishment for deterrence purposes or is it more for vengeance i mean yeah. we want this person you know and if, if it's for vengeance is that really what we want and if it's for punishment is that as effective as you know you, someone goes into prison they have an eighth grade education you know they've been strung out on opiates for five years Maybe now is a time, I mean, it should have happened a long time ago, but we can give them skills that they've never had before so that when they get out, they can manage in the real world and not do whatever it was that got them here in the first. I mean, I, I, I would venture to say that 95% of my clients regret what they did. Mm-hmm. And a lot of it is impulsive. A lot of it is just drug related. Um, when you're when you got opiate uh, opiate abuse disorder, um, when you wake up in the morning, all you're thinking about is getting a hit. You know, you don't you don't even know what time it is, what day it is. Doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. Um, and if it means that you've got to take money from your your grandmother's you know savings, I mean that's what I'm. Gonna, I'm I'll worry about other things later. Um, they just they're they're not mean. Um, and they 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 all have a, an essential sense of what's right and what's wrong, and and most of them recognize the need for punishment, but I think they recognize it because everyone else is saying we punish people under these circumstances, without taking the next step. And what what is this punishment going to accomplish? 
Yeah, honestly, I mean, I think we put, especially when it comes to addicts, right? We put them in prison and just like re-traumatize them or amp up the, crank up the trauma to volume 11 when like, I mean, statistically, most people who turn to substances, I don't, I will say most, right? I think the evidence is there that the vast majority of people who end up chronically using hardcore drugs have some level of trauma. Like there's solid research to back that up, that, that, that it's not just a brain disease, although that's relevant, but that like people are trying to cope with reality. So what do we do to teach them a lesson? We give it, we make it harder for them to cope with the reality they have. It's just, man. What it's, do painkillers do? What's that? What do painkillers do? They kill pain, right? Yeah. When, when I was in high school, I, I got a nasty soccer injury and they rushed me to the hospital and I got some morphine. Um, and what's a, I don't know if you've ever had morphine, but the amazing mm. thing about it is the pain doesn't go away. It's just you don't care anymore. And that, I think, is when you talk about the trauma that these people experience. I mean, th yeah. they know the trauma is still there, but it's just it doesn't bother them anymore. They, you know, um, and I remember one hit of morphine in the hospital saying to myself, I could get addicted to this. You know, yeah. this is really this is nice. And oh, I've had that experience too. Like with, with, I mean, with prescription drugs that you know a doctor has given me, like a Valium for anxiety. That's one of the the, the most abused drugs. And we have a society. We live in a society that like amplifies stress, amplifies anxiety, amplifies all these things that you then turn to substances that will you know trigger an addiction to treat. Um, and then, but then you're punished, right? If you can't control it, or if you can't like find the resolve within yourself to stop. So it's just. I mean, I, you know, obviously care about this because I'm from a community that's just like run ragged with this kind of stuff, but it's, it's pretty abundant all over the place. I mean, you don't have to go far outside of Boston University to see someone on the street who's probably extremely high on heroin or some similar substance. So, yeah. Um, yeah. Go on. So most of my clients, you know, the first time you do heroin, it's just amazing mm -hmm. and then you do it again and it's almost as amazing but it's not quite as amazing it's still pretty good and then you start chasing the high mm -hmm. and then eventually you're, you're using just to stay from being dope sick and then it really isn't fun and uh, you know um but yeah why are they there in the first place yeah they're killing pain they they're, yeah. they there's something going on i mean and there and in addition to that were those people who you know the the sackler family who was telling doctors We've got this great, this, this miracle drug, this Oxycontin, which you can yeah. give, your, give your patients as many as you want. They'll never get addicted. And tens of thousands of people were addicted to this substance um, through no fault of their own. Yeah. Appalachia is a, a huge case study of that because uh, all the like the injuries due to the kind of work that people in Appalachia do, they were just getting fed uh, oxys and it's right. So game over for, well, not game over, but it, it pretty bad situation there mixed with the poverty. Yeah, I am. Um, I was talking to someone one time who had done heroin pretty extensively in the past and had, you know, a lot of issues with addiction. And uh, I was talking to them and I was kind of joking, but kind of not joking. And I was like, yeah, I mean, I, I I'm never going to do this, but I, I, I know that if I tried heroin, I, I probably like it. And he looks at me and he's like, it's heroin. Of course you'd like it. <laughs> like, yeah. But yeah. Um, so to the point, right. It, it take, it does the job. It just has some very terrible consequences and we do not do a good job of taking care of people who suffer from those consequences, which, you know, is where you get in. So, and I guess on the same subject, like in what ways has the movement for prison reform affected your practices a lot, your personally, you you've talked a bit about that, but like particularly in the in the defense of those accused, how do you think about that? Yeah, it's a, that's that's a good question. Um, I have yet to have a client who has said to me, you know, I really should go to jail. You know, mm. I think I think that would be really good for me. Um, and I have. I'm trying to think if over my 35 years, judges have been less inclined. I, I think it's fair to say, at least in my neck of the woods, when it is a substance abuser um, who is not selling, um, 30 years ago, they were more likely to go to jail than they are now. So mm -hmm. we made some slight progress. 
And we have things called drug courts. So you go in, you plead guilty. Rather than going to jail, you you enter treatment, right? And if you successfully complete the treatment, you don't, don't go to jail. And this is somewhat similar. I think you may know, may, maybe you don't. Portugal and Uruguay have both decriminalized the possession of all drugs. Um, yeah. Didn't Portland try that as well? Uh, Oregon, I, the state of Oregon, Oregon. Done and it's there are some mixed reviews on that, actually. Uh-huh. Um, that may not be working. And yeah. part of the problem is that if you're just giving them a citation, oh. the police just give them a, a referral. Most of them are going to treatment and mm. some of them are having. Um, oh, God, I, I'm spacing on the, the substance, the antibiotic, not antibiotics, but. It'll come to me. This is a senior moment. You'll have more of these as you grow older. Um, I carry it in my car. So if I if I come across someone who's ODing in the- Oh, Narcan? Narcan. Narcan. Yeah, Narcan, Narcan. That's it. Narcan. Narcan parties where you know you 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 use as much as you can, and then if it looks like they're turning blue, you just you know have them snort some Narcan and they're back again. Mm -hmm. Um, but the the experience in Portugal and in Uruguay has been very good. Um Crime rate has gone down. Addiction rates have gone down. HIV has gone down. Um, that has not yet been the experience in Oregon. And I think part of that is that there is not yet a, a sufficient network of treatment providers. Um, and people really need to be pushed into treatment. Uh, yeah. it, once, once the monkey's on your back, it's really... I, I've, I have lost, I was trying to think, five or six clients to ODs. Um, oh, Jesus, yeah. One of whom was pregnant with twins. Damn. Um, and I saw her a week before she died, and she was showing me the um, the, the sonograph, the you know, the, another senior moment. The, the, you know, the oh, yeah, yeah, the the, the I'm <laughs> losing the, the son, sonograph, sonogram. Yeah, yeah sonogram, I, is that it? The, the listeners know what we're talking about. Yeah, um, and, and the I photo said, of the the child in the in the. the and and I said to her, you're, you're you're clean, right? And she said, oh, absolutely. Well, you know, she was, and she died in the bathroom of a Seven Eleven or something. Just you know, and it, that's how addicting this is that you would take yeah. that over caring for your two children or your two unborn children. I had another client who, the day he got out of rehab after 30 days in a residential treatment facility, shoots up, and he obviously didn't know what was in it because we don't know what's in it. Um, yeah. How much fentanyl's in it, and and how much tolerance. Have you lost in the 30 days you haven't been using? Um, it, it's really hard to get off of this. It, it, it's, it's hard. I, I, something like 50% of those uh, with opiate abuse disorder um, can't make it a year um, before relapsing. I mean, relapse, you yeah. have to expect that to happen. One of the problems with drug court is if you relapse, you go to jail. Yeah. Well, part of the process of getting better. Well, I mean, your brain chemistry is altered. Like it, it you know, it does have a, a, a structural effect on you. And then I guess too, like, and this is just some of my own uh, part, partly my own experience, but like learning to cope with certain things without the help of substances, whatever those be, whether those are like marijuana. I used to smoke, you know, a lot of marijuana trying to deal with things. There was a time when I drank a little bit too much. And like it requires coming to terms with the things that you were turning the substances to resolve, which is so shitty. Like it it just sucks to do that, you know. So of course, like you're primed to have a relapse in those most vulnerable moments. And that's when we say, okay, F you, you get to go to jail now because you couldn't cut it. Like there is one piece of good news. And so you know the Koch brothers, right? I think one of them is yeah. dying, but the other ones, and they're just for your listeners. I mean, I, so I lean pretty far left and I find. I mean, it's okay to call them the embodiment of everything that's wrong with this society. I don't care. Well, I, I think they are. However, one of the counterintuitive things that they're engaged in is criminal justice reform. Yeah. And senior, oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. So a senior VP of Coke Industries is the co-chair of a criminal justice reform group that includes a lead organizer of Black Lives Matter. Yeah. So this may be, you know, so when when Paul says, you know, in Christ, there is no Greek or Jew, nor slave, nor free. I would say in prison reform, there is no left or right. Yeah. Right. Because um, it is one. I mean, I think the Koch brothers are doing this merely from an economic perspective, that yeah. economically we're better off without this. 800 million dollar prison industrial complex 
Um, same where, same with immigration with them, right? Like they support immigration in part because it brings new workers in or, or that was like their justification. Well, probably because, I mean, as, as we've discussed, um, you know, capitalism is not sustainable unless you continue to have population growth. Yeah. And and I, you, you, you'll be around. I won't be around the year 2050. The population of the planet is going to peak. And then what happens to capitalism? <laughs> But that's it. That's uh, I mean, look, maybe one day I'll I'll make a new worker. But right now I am uh, not in the business of making any new capitalists. Uh, let me tell you. No, but so it's not a sustainable system. Yeah. That's that's neither here nor there for, for today. Um, so I just want to be, I'm just curious if there was another thing I wanted to mention. Oh, so. Yeah. So we t- we've been talking a lot about prison reform and sentencing reform, but parole reform. Mm. A part of this. And so parole being you go to prison and then you get out before your maximum sentence and you are supervised for the balance of that sentence. Yeah. Every day you're supervised a day off your sentence. Over 50 percent of the people out on parole end up coming back in. And not necessarily because they commit crimes, because a, a condition of parole could be you got to see your parole officer on Monday or yeah. you got to take a, a, a drug test or you know, you got to be looking for a job. And um just as we were talking about people who show up in prison without these life skills, when you get out of prison, if you don't have stable housing, if you don't have a stable source of income, you, you don't have a car. I mean, in, in New Hampshire and Vermont, we don't have public transportation. How am I supposed to get to my parole officers? I mean, he's in the next county over. You know. Yeah. Um, I mean, we barely have it in Boston at this point, but yeah. yeah. No, I'm, I'm a big fan of the tea. I like the tea. Uh, okay, I know. I know. It's fine. It's fine. But, I'm just bitter. So, so I had a friend um, who spent some time at the prison for women. Yeah. She got herself in a jam she shouldn't have got herself into. but um, And she was older, and so she was kind of a mother hen, too. Um, and she was meeting women there who, you know, when they get out, if they can get a job at $12 an hour, um, but they've got this felony on their record. Or, you know, they can make 5000 bucks a week selling fennel. Mm-hmm. What are they going to do? I, I, so I, what is the answer? Well, I, I am very good at identifying problems. Yeah. I'm not so good at finding solutions. I don't but, think any of us are, man. Well, but, but we get a hint from what they did in Portugal. We get a hint yeah. from what they do in Norway, right? Um, and... I mean, what were some of the things? I'm not, I'm kind of familiar with it, but like, what were some of the things that worked? Well, so in Norway, let, let's compare the the correctional officers in this country with mm-hmm. the correctional officers in Norway. So in Norway, the correctional officers, before you can become a correctional officer, you have to take a two-year college-level course, right? Mm-hmm. And it covers criminology, ethics, human rights, law, psychology. Um, the staff to inmate ratio is almost one to one. Right? Um, they the the maximum security prison in Norway, Halden prison, um, which has been called the world's most humane maximum security prison. It, it's not a warden who oversees it; he's a clinical psychologist, or she is. And you have wooden furniture in your room, and you have desks, and you have bed sheets, and you have a flat screen TV, and you have a private bathroom. You have to t- go to the bathroom in front of everybody. You know, when mm-hmm. you're visiting, you don't have a correction officer going into your bodily cavities to see if your lawyer left something there. And they take yoga and they can learn to play an instrument and they learn how to cook. And I mean, what what I find so ironic about it is that's such a Christian way of treating your prisoners. Yet Norway is not a particularly Christian country. I, I, I think fewer than 10 percent of Norwegians identify themselves as Christian. Yeah. Um, but that. That is being, and then as we discussed, when you get out, you get childcare, you get housing, mm-hmm. you get a, a food allowance. If you can't find work, you get unemployment. So why do you think uh, you know, the recidivism, recidivism rate there is so low? It's because they're working to to bring you back into society, not to give you that scarlet letter, and not to permanently ostracize you. And that's the problem with our the parole system is is not designed to reintegrate. It's designed to keep you on the margins. 
Yeah, no, I mean, from what little I know about parole, it just seems so impossible, especially like I think you can't live in a house with certain things, right? Like you can't go back into a community if there are like drugs or if there's weapons or there's like there's some parameters there, too, right? Everyone will have a different parole plan, but it, yeah. it's not unusual to say you can't live with a felon. You can't live with a convicted felon. Uh, Sometimes that's your spouse, right? Yeah. Or, or your relatives, your mom, your dad. If you're a child sex offender, mm. um, you, you can't live within a certain um, per, uh, diameter of school. But, you know, perhaps your parents live 100 yards from the high school. Can't live there, you know. Um, yeah. I, I, if it's like any sex offender too, right? Like, so if, I mean, like if you took a piss in a, in a public park one night and some, you know, for some reason got in trouble for that, you could end up on a sex offender registry list. Yep, you right? could end up on the registry and. Yeah. 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 So just, yeah, I guess, I mean, is there, are there, are there more? Did you want to say something else there? I, oh, I could, I could talk forever about this, but um, yeah. I, I think we've agreed. Um, we have identified the problem. Mm-hmm. Um, and the solutions, I think there are hints to what the solutions are. They also would take a great deal of political courage, yeah. um, which um, I don't see a whole lot of, because for whatever reason, in this day and age, being mean carries with it a lot of political currency. Um, that's people, I, I don't know why it is. Well, I, I, I do know why it is. There are some politicians who uh, make sport of just humiliating other people. and. You know, I'm mm-hmm. not mentioning any names, obviously, but um, but for whatever reason, that is selling. And other people are trying to out mean that person. And maybe, you know, we should take a step. And I just find it so I, I'm confused by people, these self-professed Christians who aren't acting in a Christian way. Where, you know, yeah, no, there, there's a there's so much cultural and social capital in vitriol and i mean i you know i i stand more to the left as well like very very much kind of a leftist but also like i see it from every angle just there's a there's a there's a currency to be uh tossed around in being vitriolic and finding someone to throw under the bus and to create an enemy out of and for a certain segment of the the population that goes to the polls it's the most marginalized people that get tossed under the bus and in that camp of people are those in prison and it, I mean, coincidence that most of those people are poor and people of color. Oh, I don't, probably not, right? I mean, it, it, like, I know, so I know crack carries a harsher penalty than c- cocaine, but I also yeah. think, right, doesn't methamphetamine also carry a harsher penalty than, um, like, some other more expensive drugs? I believe, and I could be corrected on this, I believe that the disparity between crack sentencing and, and powder cocaine sentencing was fixed, but not okay. for like 20 years that mm. so, I mean, was clearly racially based um, dichotomy. Um, and, but I, 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 I just, I want to get back to the Jesus thing because. Oh yeah, we, go for it. Well, no, I was just going to say, so at, at the moment, one of my favorite passages is Matthew 25, 31 and following, uh, which is the judgment of the nations, which really isn't a judgment. It's a judgment of yourself. When Jesus says, he's not talking about substitutionary atonement. He's talking about, I was hungry and you fed mm-hmm. me. I was thirsty. You know, I was a stranger and you welcomed me. If you had to crystallize Jesus's, and I'm talking about the pre-Easter Jesus, who, who's the Jesus who I really, who resonates within me. Yeah, amen. I, I'm not really into the Pauline post-Christ, you know, he died for our sins and all you can do is that. But if you had to crystallize his uh, philosophy into two words, it would be abolish tribalism. Yeah, you know, and and that's and when he's saying what you did to the least of me, these you did to me. Um, so God is in the the marginalized. He's in the poor. He's in the community that we view as foreign. But we we need to get over that. And um, as I say, ninety five percent of my clients love people and have people who love them and have values and have had a really hard time of. A few, you know, a small percentage of I have to, they, they're psychotic or sociopathic, and I don't know what to do about them. They're a problem, uh, and they they're potentially dangerous. But yeah, we we can do so much better, and we we can make this world a better place by just abolishing tribalism. Yeah, I mean, I agree. I just 
I guess, you know, I'm, I'm trying to like empathize with those who take an opposing position to us. Um, Cause I, I, you know, I don't even think that those individuals are just hateful necessarily. Like even, even the politicians. Yeah. I mean, maybe they're just swimming in a certain sort of capital and they think that that's, what's going to get them elected, you know, next round. But also I think like people genuinely believe at times that they're doing the right thing. And I think also people, I mean, I know from my own family. So I had some some history of like violence in in the family where there was a murder and there there was a whole trial and it was you know a, a big long drawn out thing. But like there are news reports where my um, my aunts and uncles are getting interviewed over the death of their son who was you know violently murdered. And I disagree with their reasoning for why this person should rot in prison for the rest of their life. But like, damn, if I don't kind of empathize with where they're coming from, that they don't they don't necessarily hate this person. And they're very much Christian. They're expressing that sensibility through and through. And yet they just cannot like get past what was done to them. And I wonder, like, for how many people that, you know, is is playing into it, that it's just, you know, you you do a particular kind of transgression and they, they can't see you in that human light anymore. I, I don't know. That's just kind of something I've thought about. You know, it's also just it's so messy. It's so messy and it's very difficult to help people, especially when they're in the throes of addiction. Um, yeah. We should do it, but it, it's asking quite a lot. I think, I don't know. How, how would you respond to that kind well, of reasoning? It, it, it sounds trite, but it's true that I mean, the addict has to want to be you know, free of the addiction. I mean, you can't, you can't force it on them. And I had a, a, a woman who was a secretary in my office and I didn't realize this until she had told me she had been uh, abusing opiates to the point. I mean, it was really bad. Mm-hmm. And just, you know, she, she, and one day she just said, "I've got to stop." And she did a cold turkey, which is horrible. I mean, it's just an awful way to do it. Um, there, there's a lot of medically assisted treatment, which is really effective. But she just did a cold turkey, and and she has been clean for I don't know five years, ten years, whatever it is. Um, but how how do we get these people to recognize? You know, if if they're loved ones. If, Maybe you can draw on them. I mean, you're hurting me when you do this. And, you know, I, I, you know, the expression, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make him drink. I I have so many clients who I just, I want to get them into treatment and they just, there's a lot of denial. And I I had, like I said, I've lost, I've lost clients um, because they just were not willing or able to make that commitment. I I don't know. We have a problem and we get, need to find a solution yeah no i mean i i sometimes think about it in the way we were talking about this earlier and i was saying i'm not that into paul tillich but i'm about to quote my favorite philosopher paul tillich who you know says not everyone is gonna find grace like like it either happens or it doesn't and and what he means by that is something what what i read is something akin to like Look, you either see these possibilities for new beginnings manifesting in your life and and you you do what little you can to embrace what's been given or you don't. Right. There's no kind of in between there. Um, And some people just for whatever reason never do. And that is, I think, what he would refer to as a tragedy, like something that doesn't need to happen, but it does. And there's nothing that we can do but accept that this world is fractured you know at its core that there is just a split in existence so let me follow up with a quote from he was a theologian more than a philosopher but um the reverend william sloan coffin who i don't yeah. know if you've heard okay yeah, so he was, yeah okay so anyway he was chaplain at yale and, and he was the minister at riverside church in, in manhattan um and he wrote jesus is both a mirror to our humanity and a window to divinity, a window mm. revealing as much of God as is given mortal eyes to see. When Christians see Christ empowering the weak, scorning the powerful, healing the wounded, and judging their tormentors, we are seeing transparently the power of God at work. Yeah. You know? And yeah, I mean, so Jesus, and that's why, like we, we were talking, I, I really am. I find so much in Jesus that I admire. Um, the Christ thing d- doesn't, frankly, interest me that much. But I, I try to live my life in the manner in which it is said that Jesus said we should. 
I feel that I used to have a shirt actually that pissed everyone in my community off, but it was from a, a not a prison abolition group, but a prison ministry group. That's what it was. It was a prison ministry group. And it was just a picture of Jesus in a, an orange jumpsuit behind bars with, I, I forgot what the scripture was, but that was the whole point is like, no, we are ministering to the people that Jesus would have been hanging around with. You know, he hung out with thieves and prostitutes and and just the people who society thought were the lowest of the lows, you know. So I feel that I actually like even now, I don't really claim that I'm a devout Christian anymore. I I used to be I used to be very, very devout uh, religious Mm -hmm. person. Uh, so devout that I wanted to strip all the uh, quote unquote pagan elements out of Christianity. <laughs> so I was like, no Christmas trees. Jefferson, right. I mean, Jefferson <laughs> cutting out all the things. Yeah. That, I was yeah. like taking out certain parts of the, my own Bible. I was like hardcore. I was like, no, 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 we do. You know, this is about Jesus Christ. Right. Um, but that said, you know, I still celebrate good Friday. I still celebrate Ash Wednesday. There are these particular elements of Christianity where I'm drawn to the humanist of the humanness of Christ as a different way of existing in the world that I wish more people could, you know, exist as. Like he's the possibility that that is feasible, that we can do that, that you don't have to be God incarnate to to be able to live that way. So I agree. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, now you you just talked about this in in saying you know how Jesus motivates you, but like, how does how do you think the justice system, if we corrected it, how could that contribute to the pursuit and actualization of a meaningful life, right? You know, for its victims and perpetrators, for and for you know, as you talked about correction correctional guards, like for people a part of that process, because obviously everyone involved in it, you know, is impacted. Yeah, so um, you, you actually you, you sent me that question, and I didn't have yeah. a whole lot of time to digest it before we got started. Um, no, speak from the heart, man. You're yeah, good at that. So, um, there there is a movement to bring, and I mean, it, it's a voluntary thing, but to bring victims of crime and the, the the criminals together in an effort to try to speak to each other and so that we don't have you know the experience that you had and the, the experience most have most people have i mean it, it is a a system in which it's, it's an adverse adversary system it's state versus charlie right um yeah. there that in and of itself sets up this um this dualism when you know perhaps we could have a system where there is less in the way of Confrontation and punishment, and more in the way of forgiveness and uh, community. Um, and I, you know, can can is that if we were able to do that, yeah, wouldn't we have a more um, just society? I mean, instead of focusing on our punishment, we'd be focusing on healing, healing that relationship, healing on the part of the person who committed the crime in the first place, who probably did it because he or she is broken. Or and or addicted and or grew up in an abusive home and or whose parents were addicts, um, you know, might might that not be a start? Yeah, I mean, beautiful. That would be a start. And I get. I guess I. I want to say that I do appreciate. You know, as we've talked, it it's really easy for for people like us who have our particular politics to just paint those who disagree with this as the wretches of the earth is unfeeling but you've done a good job of of illustrating like in the example of the Koch brothers right like they're not they are actually pure evil right i mean they are people they 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 have others that they care about they have values they maybe i don't agree with them but at the same time like there's a way for us to work together for a common goal it's not impo- you know it's not impossible to reach across the aisle even when people when even when intentions don't quite match up like okay maybe some people are doing it for purely economic reasons i don't think the person who is freed from a life of suffering in prison cares that much about why the person is doing it they just don't want to be locked up in you know a cell where all they have is a pot to piss in and a wall to stare at you know yeah. so yeah. well uh, any last thoughts you want to leave us with? Any anything that um, listeners can do to get involved with with what you're you're doing? 
Well, you know, yeah. In fact, BU has uh, an undergraduate prison reform group. Um, mm -hmm. that, um, I'm actually going to be talking to as soon as we schedule that. And I think that there's another group or maybe the same group that goes to the state prison and reads to the inmates. I mean, we can we can do little things. All we can all we can do are little things. But those yeah. little things can mean a lot and they can make a difference. Um, and, you know, and talk to your legislators about, you know, maybe there's another way to do this that isn't as harsh and might have a better output. And have you seen what they do in Norway or in yeah. Norway? You know, I know. Yeah. I mean, I'm with you. I'm not a prison abolitionist either, although I feel like I'm surrounded by prison abolitionists yeah. in some sometimes. But I, I'm not a prison abolitionist either. Like, I, I do think there are very bad people, as much as I don't want to believe that to be the case about humans. Like, there are some, there are some terrible people that will hurt others without yeah. flinching. And that something's got to happen, you know. But I do want to see, as you do people who have just been hurt by the world treated with humanity and given a way back to wholeness you know we all deserve it we all deserve a little bit of grace so well thank you so much charlie this has been an awesome conversation and maybe one day you can come back and talk about what take was like that's i did not know that you would met him that's insane <laughs> for you to yeah. just throw that into the yeah teddy teddy and i go way back all right you know, oh, don't say that. Gosh, that'll get you in trouble. I had a whole age, uh, about six months ago, I think. So we lost Teddy, but um, he was a very, I mean, very, very, very bright guy who was also a sociopath. Um, you know, he went to bad MIT combination. Yeah. yeah, smart um, and like and sociopathic. Said, yeah. Well, so and the question was, was he insane or was he just nuts? I mean, because insane. I mean, in, in the yeah. law, insanity is a specific thing. But we'll talk about that some other time. We can, yeah, you, you need to come back. You're, you're an excellent discussion partner. So, all right. All right. Well, thank you. Thank, thank you again, you, Charlie. All right.